Welcome back, everybody, to Who's Your Band? Uh, Sean, how are you today? Sean Morton, my co-host. You know, Jeffrey, I'm wonderful. We had a beautiful show on Friday night. Uh, we did. All sold our comics show. were sold out show. All our comics were great. You were you were fantastic. I think I did fairly well myself. And okay. uh, it was a fun night. It was a fun night. It was a fun night. It was, and it was good seeing everybody. It was good seeing everybody come out. A lot of people listened to the show who came who came out, uh, which was uh, nice to see. So, uh, yeah, guys, keep uh, keep listening, keep supporting, subscribe. And today, we man, we have a great show today. We yes, really we do. do. You know, we've had some great, great drummers on this show. We've had people like Liberty DeVito and Johnny uh, Kelly. Okay. But today we are joined from... Uh, Shadows Fall from Flotsam and Jetsam from Overkill. You know, the, the brilliant Mr. Jason Bittner. Jason, how are you? I'm good. <laughs> how are you? <laughs> with, Thanks with for both, having me. Oh, man, it's our pleasure. We're, we're very happy to have you on. And one of the things we were talking about uh, before uh, we actually started, uh, we started airing this right now, um, you, you were saying uh, you went out to Berkeley to study music, right? Mm-hmm. As yeah, did I mean, many so, others, as did many others in the mid to late eighties. Yeah, <laughs> very true. Yeah. So, so, where did your love and appreciation for music? Where did it all start? Where did it originate from? Uh, that's really a tough answer to 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 kind of pinpoint that. Uh, well, you up, you're upstate New York. Yeah, I was always drawn to it as a kid for whatever reason or another. It wasn't like I came from a musical family like we talked about a little while ago. Hi, buddy. I know I'm trying to do an interview right now. A <laughs> cat wants to wants to wants to say I, oh. I have one right over here, right behind <laughs> the screen. There's a cat. Two, yes. Two sisters are waiting for food upstairs. He's too busy down here because he knows I'm down here. <laughs> uh so I always had had like an attraction to music. And when I was a kid, I knew I wanted to play something. And I was born in 1970. So in 1976, when my father gave me the Kiss Destroyer album, because he bought it at the store because he thought the cover looked cool. And then he put it on and went, oh my God, I don't, I can't, this is terrible. I, I normally listen to the Doobie Brothers. So here you go, kid. So, you know, upon, upon receiving, it was just like, whoa, that's, that's awesome. Whatever this is, I don't even know what this is yet, but I know it's awesome. So that made me want to want to play something. And when I was a kid, you know, like, you know, I was a typical thing, banging on pots and pans, like with my grand, you know, my grandmother's kitchen and, and in my mother's kitchen. But when I was a kid, I had like toy drum sets and toy guitars because you know, in 1976, I didn't want to be Peter Chris. I wanted to be Gene Simmons. I wanted to be the guy who was front and center stage. Exactly. Spitting fire and, and, and spitting blood. I'm like, I don't want to be the cat, man. I want to be the demon. <laughs> so, so even like, even dressing up as, you know, kissing heist or um, elementary school and stuff for like Halloween, I was always Gene Simmons. I was never Peter Chris. I was like, you, no way. Oh, when you were a kid, you, uh, for trick or treat, you dressed up as, oh, as a member of Kiss? Oh, oh wow. Uh, I think I think the more the more majority of musicians that you talk to, if they were born between 1965 and 1975, they're going to tell you they were doing the same thing. Oh sure, Jason. Every almost every going to back me up with this, but everybody says their musical influences are either Kiss or the Rolling Stones. We get that answer so many times. Yeah, but here's the thing: they weren't a musical influence as my, as musicians. They were, you know, Peter Chris was never like. You know, the guy who's I know it's going to offend some Kiss fans, but Peter Chris was never the guy whose picture I was putting on the wall. Like I said, I put Gene's picture up. Peter sure. Chris wasn't like I wasn't attracted to Peter Chris's drumming. I heard someone like Keith Moon. I'm like, oh, that's something spectacular. I heard John right. Bond. I'm like, oh, that's something. I don't know what it is yet, but I know that's something different with Kiss. It was something with Kiss. It was the show. It was the spectacle. Right. It was right. It was OK. I want to be in a rock band. This is what I want to do. It wasn't even like metal or any kind of direction like that because there really was no metal at that point. You know, it was just, it was just a hard rock band. It was theatrics and, and stuff like that. Slipknot was, was nothing, you know, wasn't even a thought at this point. So, so that whole aspect of it, you know, I, like I said, I had a toy guitar, toy drums, all that stuff. And then once I got into, um, 
elementary school, once they offered music lessons, which was in third uh, third grade for us for drums for so any for whatever reason you could take any other instrument in second grade, but drums you have to wait till third. So I just started, you know. Will you give it a rest there, sir? <laughs> Holy, I'm like, I'm like, maybe they don't hear that. Maybe they don't hear. That. I, hear you guys, I see you guys laughing. I'm like, yeah, they hear that. <laughs> Either come join the party, or you know, he just sits over in the corner of the room because he wants me to go get him. <laughs> All right. Anyway, so so um, I started taking lessons in 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 third grade with drums and. So then drums became my focus. And then like maybe when I was uh, probably like, <laughs> probably like in maybe seventh or eighth grade, I got another guitar again, just to, just to fart around with it, to be able to play chords and stuff and be able to write song ideas and stuff like that. Were you good at the, any of these instruments right from the very beginning? I was great at drums before I even started taking lessons. Wow. No, no, because, because what happens sometimes. I'm totally, I'm totally kidding with that statement. Yeah, I had a natural ability as a child um, at for for drums. I mean, I, there was a natural ability there. I have, you know, cassette tapes of me playing along on eight-track tape player cases with, with homemade sticks to my dad's Doobie Brothers records and, and still being in time with the band, or Allman Brothers, right, as a matter uh, to correct myself there. Um, so there was, there was an, there was an affinity with that, but I practiced, you know, it was something that I was, you know, hardcore about. So I was always, wherever I was in elementary school, middle school, I was always at the top of the chair or the top of the food chain. If it was the, the drum line or whoever, you know, who was the number one guy that was playing all the songs on the set? That was me. I wasn't the guy who was playing the bass drum or back playing the bells. I was the guy that the, that the music instructor was calling on first. So I was a big shit until I got to high school. And then I got to high school and realized that that didn't fly in high school. Okay, you're the... <laughs> and so yeah, I had ability with drums, but guitar, it was just like, ah, plank, a plank, a plank. No, can't play guitar nearly as well as I can play drums. So, so when you're in high school, you're, this is like, there's the 80s. Did you, were you a metal guy? Did you have long hair? Or were you kind of like a new wave kid? Totally not even there yet, but that there's the, that's still a whole other part of the story. <laughs> and, and now to be quite honest with you, I totally f- forgot where I was going with this. You went, so you're in high school, school and you're not this shit anymore. You're not this shit <laughs> yeah. anymore in high school. Yeah, you get to uh, high school once and, I got and, to and high school, high school I started, started taking like, mar- like we're starting getting into marching band and then having it be on the drum line. And then you're there as a freshman and then you have the seniors who've been doing this or the guys who just have better hands than you do. And then you're like, whoa, all right, now I have something to learn. So then that, that forces you to practice all that kind of stuff and get your chops up. And then once I got to Berkeley, you know, I'm leaving, I'm leaving here as, you know, as a local, you know, local yokel basically, but at the top of what, what I could do here, but you go to school and you think that, oh yeah, because you know, my band won the battle of the bands in high school, you know, I'm going to kick ass once I get to the music school. Once I walked into the doors at Berkeley, every single drummer I walked by, I was like, oh my God, I do not belong here. That guy's <laughs> so much better than I am. I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. It's time to go back to Albany here. And then finally you just, I came across, just came across from, you know, one of the practice rooms where I saw this kid basically working out a breeze, easy book one, which is something that you do in elementary school. And I, and I was, first of all, I was dumbfounded. I'm like, how is this even possible here to go from this whole other element of all these Uber players to this kid who's doing stuff that I did when I was in third grade. But as soon as I saw that, it gave me that, at least it gave me that thought that, okay, maybe you can hang here for a little bit, you know, maybe it's not, you know, let's not pack it in yet. So, but when, so to backtrack on your, on your other question, when I got there, yes, I was in, I was an 18 year old metalhead going to basically the jazz school, because that's what Berkeley was at that point. Berkeley was not as, as open to other kinds of music and at least to the rock genre or the metal genre at all, the way it is now back in 1988 back then you were definitely not an outcast but you were definitely look possibly you could possibly get some let's say attitude from the jazzers so to speak and i'm not saying that you wouldn't have the attitude back from the long hairs too but like well you know 
screw you and your Miles Davis records because I have my Metallica records. But both, you know, both sides eventually realizing that all of that music was is is incredible and awesome and you should be listening to it if you're the jazz guy you should be listening to the metallica record and if you're Absolutely. the metallica kid you should be listening to that miles davis record because you know what some kind of blue and, and sketches of spain turned out to be two of my favorite records of all time so but when i got there i was that 18 year old metalhead but i was immersed into so my project my trajectory of how i got to that point from the, the kiss fan in the 70s was once the 80s, once the 70s became the 80s and I, and I started playing drums and I became more aware of drummers, that got me more interested to what I was hearing. And one of the biggest influences there was Bottom because of course, my dad used to listen to a classic rock station all the time. So he used to play Led Zeppelin all the time. So John Bonham was a big influence on me orally before I even sat which down. So, which hard. songs by Zeppelin, like? really stood out here which really kind of like you know resonated want to know you. the first the actual the first song that that stood out to me the most that i remember from from those days and it's and it's not something that anybody ever says it, it's it's all of my love off in through the outdoor and there's a whole oh, it's a great song there's a whole and other a, story playing with power that, on that. that doesn't need to be talked about but that's that is like the first zeppelin song that was ingrained in my head and the sound of bonham's kick drum and the fills and all that and this was even before i even had a kit so so i went through that and then once mtv hit it was a total influx of all these different kinds of, of musics at once and and i was day one of mtv my grandmother used to work for schenectady Cablevision, and i used to stay at her house during the summers and i just happened to be flipping through the channels and all of a sudden i flip across what ended up being rat child by iron maiden but at the time oh, sure. I'm like, what is this with the monster on tv you know mm -hmm. so then it's it's this mtv station so then i'm i'm watching this thing all day and i'm being immersed with all these different kinds of music the first time i heard ska for the first time new wave all this stuff metal because it was the first time i ever saw iron maiden in my life so with the advent of MTV, I became a huge police fan and a huge new wave fan. Split Ends is still one of my favorite bands to this day. So I was heavily influenced by that kind of stuff, but really big time into the police. So I'm already going through the trajectory of all the greatest rock drummers of all time. John Bonham, Stuart Copeland. It started already with Ginger Baker, Mitch Mitchell, and Keith Moon, because my parents listened to The Who and Jimi Hendrix and Cream and all that. So I already got what that. What about Pert? You, you put Neil Pert in there? Did you listen to Rush? Can we? <laughs> may, all right. I, without, without me sounding like an absolute arrogant jerk right now, let's rewind the first 15 minutes of this interview and go back to what I said, where I was sitting in my basement, what I was sitting in front of. That is a giant Neil Peart banner right there. This thing right here is a Neil Peart drum set. Beautiful. One of three that exists down here. So let's ask the question again, whether or not this guy influenced my. <laughs> and you just froze. Yeah. Yeah, he did. <laughs> oh, wow. Because uh, I, I absolutely, on uh, my Mount Rushmore of bands, Rush is in my top five of all time. And I absolutely, absolutely, absolutely love Rush. 2112. Oh, man, look at that. Yeah. See Neil that, Sean? Was, Neil, Neil was, a, was a friend, and and uh, I miss him dearly. He was the biggest, biggest influence in my life, but we hadn't even, uh, we hadn't even brushed upon that subject yet. But uh, anyways. Did you, did you play in a high school band? Before you went to, to college, did you play in a band in high school? You mean like a garage like a band? Like a rock band, yeah. Yeah, I, I had a band with some 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 kids like when we were in um the freshman year or sophomore year. No, it might have actually been freshman year. Freshman and sophomore year when I because I first I went to to one high school and then we actually moved up the street into a different house, but we moved out of the one school district to the other. So I had to switch for my last two years of high school. So my first two years of high school was just like pick up, you know, jamming and stuff. I actually had like sort of a cover band. Well, ironically, which is very funny, I had a cover band with my friend who used to live down the street and we used to play in his parents' basement. 
but he's my friend who I still, I still do studio work with. And I have been for the last 30 years. Cause he's, he does a, has a large recording complex out about a half an hour from where I live. But ironically, we had a band together in high school, but I didn't really start getting serious about being in actual bands that were playing out or playing any kind of gigs for, you know, per se until probably my senior year of high school. That's when I started getting into, you know, gig bands, but it wasn't that much because then I went away to Berkeley and I didn't play in any, I didn't, I didn't play in any, I almost played in, well, I played in the studio band in Berkeley that we had amongst members of classes at Berkeley, which turned into a project that ironically enough, it, it ended up being me and, and a guy who ended up going to play guitar in the band death. That's one of my you know favorite bands and one of the biggest influential bands in, in the metal metal, you know, world period. But we actually had a band together in college. Um, but I was so committed to the what was going on there that I wasn't focused. I wasn't focused on playing in a band. I wasn't really worried about that until I left school. And because that's what then I left school to pursue trying to, quote unquote, make it in, in a band. So that's when that whole the whole trajectory of being in bands really started in 80, 88, 89. So how does someone do that? How does someone, you know, um go to college, you know, learn that craft, graduate college. And now it's like, you're not knocking on doors to try and get a job. How do you get a job? How do you wind up becoming a professional musician and supporting yourself? You don't, you, 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 you leave, you leave and drop out of school. Cause you think it's the good idea to do in 1989. After going for a year, you move halfway across the state to Missouri with some dudes that you formed a band with, and then you realize a week after getting there that shit, this is a fucking stupid idea. <laughs> and then you get right back in your van and drive home and go to community college because your mother's really pissed off at you that you left the, the expensive music school. So then you drive home, you go back with your tail between your legs, your major, uh, major Air Force grandfather wants his thousand dollars back that he gave you for his, his, your trip because now you have now avoided your trip and now you move back home under your mother's roof. You understand the story I'm getting at here. Oh I yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. For a long time. Like I came, I left school because I thought I was going to make it by the time I was 21. I came home. That didn't, you know, that didn't work out. I was back home at 19, going to community college, got my degree, all that stuff. Worked What'd you get a degree time. in? Um, my first one was humanities and social sciences. And then I went back to school again for a two year because I, well, once again, this is farther down in the story. I was, I was in touring bands for a little while, came home, thought it wasn't the thing I wanted to do. Went back to school again for computer sciences because I was working a computer job and got literally three courses away from graduating. And then I got the audition with shadows fall. And then I went on to becoming a professional. So uh, that, that that's kind of like a that's kind of like a wild trajectory where you're like, hey, I don't know if I really want to be in a, a musician anymore, and I want to go into computer programming. Well, you sort of asked a question that made me jump to the to the, to what I just said. So, like, you have to remember, there's another kind of ten years of things that happened in there. It wasn't just like I came up from school all of a sudden. Let's be a computer programmer. I came home from school. I went back to working, but I was still trying to like, you know, put a band together, make it play shows out of town, you know, do the regional gig. I got in a band called Stigmata in 1994. We did some touring around the region. We had a lot of showcases for a lot of labels. It's, it's the typical story. You know, we, you know, we did a showcase at CBGB's for Warner brothers. They came there. They loved the band. They said they wanted thought about signing the band. They didn't sign the band. You know, uh, we did other showcases for other labels and you just did that whole thing that all the bands used to do for the 80s through the 80s and the 90s. So we did all this struggling. We made a few records. We'd get to this point and then something would happen and we wouldn't get any further. So the band kind of disbanded in 1995. I moved on to another band that was getting a little farther along because they had a record label. They had tours set up around the world. So now I'm touring around the world. That fell through because I realized that the people in the band became disillusioned with really what the band was doing. And I think some of them had delusions of grandeur for that band and just things didn't work out. So it was at that point after I'd been touring around for two years 
and really feeling like I was getting nowhere. And I was now in my later twenties, you know, 20. Are you able to support yourself doing that? No, living home with my mother, working a job. Crazy. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? So uh, like, it, it, I, no, I wasn't. And I was spending money because I'd have to travel to New York City every weekend for, for rehearsal and stay there for the weekend, driving from, you know, Albany to take the train down and all that. It was, it was, it was a money pit. So I come home and I end up getting back into my old band Stigmata, which is just a regional thing at that point, because we were now of the ilk of like, let's just do it for fun, whatever. You know, we're not trying to. You're playing originals or covers? Originals. I was an original band. We were one of the biggest bands in this area for a long time. Um, and uh, <sighs> anyways, um, I, I got a little diverted once again here. Um, so it was to a point in time where, where in 1998, I was pretty disillusioned with this band. And I was like, all right, that's it. I'm coming home. And at that point, I had a chance. I had taken a leave of absence from work. I was working for the state, too. I was working for the Department of Motor Vehicles. Now, I took a leave of absence as a clerk. When I came back, I got offered a promotion and a chance to go up into, into the computer room, which, okay, there you go. Career trajectory. You're in your later 20s. Nothing going to be wrong with doing this for the next 30 years of your life. Thought this pretty much was it. So that was going to be my, my future. So hence going back to school to try to up that, you know, getting the entry level computer job, which would then lead to the better monetary one, and the better one higher up the food chain. And, you know, I did that for three years and, and got almost got to, like I said, getting a degree there, but it just happened that fate, Fate had it where it just I happened to get a phone call and Shadows Fall asked me if I wanted to come down and audition. And I at that point I didn't because Stigmata had run its course. We had we had gone through a lot of failure, a lot of ups and downs with that, and a lot of I don't feel like, you know, trying to get a deal anymore at 30 years old. And my mom had just died and she was my best friend. So that crushed my world. And it, I just wasn't in a in a good headspace. So like maybe like another five weeks later, they call back like, oh, would it be, you know, would it just be, you know, terrible just to come down and jam? I'm like, no. All right. So I learned the first five songs off their record. I went down there, I played with those guys. And then, you know, that's it. <laughs> and they already had two albums out uh, beforehand, right? Before. Uh, you not really. Not really. Because I don't I don't really consider Somber Eyes to the Sky a record because. It's it's self-released. Lifeless Records was Matt was Matt's um, label. And I'm not discounting Phil, Phil Labonte from All It Remains being a singer in the band. But to me, Shadows Fall is from when Brian Fair joined the band. Right. So I always say they had one record because to me, it's only of one blood. And then, you know, Art of Balance on where, where I was part of the band. Now, you see, the reason... Um I, I was happy about this interview is uh, me and Jeff are very, uh, very big musical nerds when it comes to it. Jeff is more of a uh, uh, more of a classic metal, you know, I mean, like the Maiden, the Priest, yep. uh, you know, that kind of stuff and the classic rock. And where I come in is I love all that, too. But my main is like the hard rock metal area, you know, Uh that time period, I think going from like, I'd say like 96 to like 2003, 2004, it's kind of where they, they pigeonhole with that term, the new, uh, the new wave of American heavy metal. Yep. Which uh, for me, I, I, I like that phrase because that time frame, there were so many amazing, amazing bands. I mean, besides Shadows Fall, you had... Killswitch Engage and Lamb of God and Machine Head and Pantera and all these bands that were blowing up. And it really took metal to one of the biggest genres that was out there at this point. So when you're going into um, you're going into Shadows Fall and you're going to start doing the Art of Balance, do you feel that you're going to uh, take over the world with this album? Because this was this was a really amazing record front to back. Like, what was your what was your feeling going into the band and actually doing that for that record? No, you know it's it's funny when I go back to that because I can still I still I still see us writing writing that record because we wrote it in John's parents' uh, den 
<laughs> Basically, we used to practice. We used to practice. I don't even know how the hell we did this. We used to practice in John's parent at John's parents' house in the back room. They had a den, and it was like it, like it, it was it was like half the the workout room for John's older sisters and half the music room for John. So like we would have to go there and we'd have to move all the furniture every time we'd practice and we'd have to move the workout equipment. And then we'd have to set the little drum set up in the corner because we only had enough room for like a five piece kit. And we'd all just like be like surrounded around each other on one side of the room writing this record. So that happened shortly after I joined the band. Um, like when when I went down to to audition or to jam, they had some of the demos ready for. Well, they had some of the demos they were working on for Outer Balance, but they you know they knew they had this tour with Kitty coming up. So at that point, they had two songs written, which was Mystery of One Spirit and Stepping Outside the Circle. So those were already demoed and they were recorded at Zeus's. So those were the two we were working with. But then we had a lot of skeletons for for a lot of them. I think Fire in Babylon came rather quickly too, because that was a longer song. So that kind of got written first. Um, Destroyer of Senses was the last song that got written because we actually wrote that in the studio. Um, Cause we got to a point where we had like nine, nine or 10 songs and we had, we knew we were going to need a bonus track and we had the song, this is my own, but that was going to be on the record, but that ended up getting held as the bonus track for Japan. And it also got used later on in this uh, Showtime show called, uh, oh, God. Uh, it was a horror. So I, I can't remember. It was like uh, Masters of Horror. Okay. Um, and, and that was cool to, to see that in there. So we held that song off. We needed another song. So we ended up, you know, Matt had a couple of the riffs for Destroyer of Senses. And John came up with a couple of things. And basically the three of us just jammed it out in the studio. And, you know, we got to the point where like, all right, we're sure this is the arrangement, right? Yep. All right all right, Jay, go in the other room and track the drums for real now. And that's literally what it was like, all right, we're sure this is it. All right. And, and that's, you know, that's what ended up happening. So we had those demos on the kitty tour when we went and did the tour. So we were listening to them when we were over in Europe in January. And the plan was to come back in February, March and April and, and get in the studio sometime in the spring, get home from the tour and finish up the last bit of writing that we need to do and then record the record. Because we knew we had fall touring coming up with Hatebreed and stuff like that. So we needed to get that record done. So we came home and it was one of those things where, like I said, we spent a lot of time hashing those songs out, but we spent, we had that whole tour of five weeks in Europe where we were able to listen to them every day while we were riding around Europe in a shitty camper van, Mm -hmm. you know, following the tour around because we had all this driving time and we had time to listen to songs and talk about it amongst ourselves before we even went back home and got in the studio. So it was good that we had that time to do that. And then once we came home, we kind of just banged it out. And when we got in the studio, it was fairly quick when we did it. I did, you know, it's funny because Zeus still has the snare drum head on his wall, the snare drum head off the drum that I used on, on the record. You know, I did seven songs the first day and three songs the next day. Drums were done in two days. That's crazy. Yep. yep. So now you tour, tour with Kitty. Is What was the next tour after that? Was that something else or did you go we around? Spent to a lot of time that? touring with Kitty that year. As a matter of fact, it started out as one tour and then it turned into like, you know, you know we kept joking. We're like, we're just going to tour with Kitty for like our whole career. Because we ended up doing two stage tours with him too, I think it was. Or it was either that or it was just a really long summer tour. It was like so long ago. So we we started with them. It was January and February of 2002. Right. That was 2002 in the summer. All right. Yeah. So it was right in, it was right into the summer because 2003 us and Killswitch were on Ozfest. Right. All right. So we toured with them for like four weeks in Europe and then we came home. We had a spring tour or something, some short thing that we did with uh, all that remains. And then we did this, uh, this, this short tour called the white trash thrash attack. And it was two weeks on the East coast and it was us and lamb of God. And this was back when we were in vans, you know? Right. Right. Um, and then for five weeks in the summer, we did, this was the tour. It was kitty. Uh, all right. Now I have to remember who was direct support. Was it kill switch or poison the well? It, it was kit. I think it was poison. The well, it was from the top down. It was kitty poison. The well kill switch us in this band called Hotwire. 
which great show. That's a great tour. We're a fucking great rock band from California, which we ended up doing Ozfest with too. And we just loved those guys. We had so much fun with them and they were just a great band. So we did, we did another five weeks with Kitty in the States. And then that September, September, October, we did a month with Hatebreed. We did two tours with Hatebreed and then we did a tour with Mushroom Head. And with that one, that's the one we, we always fucking laugh at. We're like, can you believe the fucking lineup on that Mushroom Head tour? <laughs> fall, fall into winter of 2002 from the top down, Mushroom Head was the headliner. We were the direct support. High on Fire, yes, the Grammy-winning High on Fire, was the band before us in the opening band, dun da da <laughs> Avenged Sevenfold. Like, I'm their that's, first that's tour. A ridiculous, that's a ridiculously like, stupid lineup. On their first tour ever. And ironically, I swear to God, and I just don't say this because I'm an overkill, but the first day I met those guys and I saw their shirts, I walked up to them and I go, dude, that logo... It looks very similar to a very well-known thrash band from New Jersey. Uh, who? Uh, Overkill. Oh, no, it's different. No, it's not. No, it's not. No, it's not. <laughs> what kind of venues were you playing, Jason? A lot of tours like that? Yeah. Depend on, depends on your territory. So, we're, so I'm in New Jersey, so I would imagine you played the Birch Hill. No. No, we didn't play Birch Hill on that. You know what? I never played Birch Hill. Really? Um, I don't, to be honest with you, I don't even think that tour hit Jersey because that was one of those ones that it was a weird routing because it was based on Mushroom Head because they were from Cleveland. So what we did was we routed out somehow and we did all these wacky places like, you know, Grand Rapids, Michigan and going up by Wisconsin and all these Midwest territories that they killed in, which is why, because you, you're kind of hard to give you an answer on what kind of venues we were playing. Because if you go to Syracuse, where Mushroom Head doesn't have that big of a following, we're playing a venue of 300 cap people, you know, 300 right. cap maybe. But if they're in Cleveland, 5,000 sold out at the Agora. Right. And some of these other places in the Midwest too, where we're like, holy shit, where are they? Where are the people coming from first? That's the first question you ask. Like, where the where the people even come from? And then you find like they're driving forty five minutes from this way, forty five minutes from that way, forty five minutes from that way. But the room is packed. So, you know, everything it, it varies, especially a lot of the tours vary vary on markets. You know, on on what the cap of the room is. Why Why do you think that is? Because I know like upstate New York it has a good. Uh, heavy metal, hard rock following. But then when you go into the city, you know, none of the stations really play like hard rock. I don't think really you get that airplay pretty much anywhere anyways. And it's all on the internet now anyways. Right. A, a tour that's going to play, <clears throat> if a tour is going to play Northern Lights and do 600 people, then then they're probably going to end up going to, I would think at least the Nokia in New York City where you can put 2,000 in. Yeah, it depends. It depends on what night you're. It, it's all those different factors, which is why you know sometimes when you look at tour itineraries and you go, "They're playing there," like you know, with that questionable you know look on your face. Why are they playing there? Why aren't they playing at the Palace? Well, because the Palace costs you know fifty percent right. more to run for that day, and you know it's it's forty percent more seats. And what if they don't sell the tickets? You know, then you know then you're screwed. Sure. So. And especially, I want to know about your Ozfest uh, experience because that, to me, I mean, as a metalhead, we would go every single year, every single year, and you know, the the younger we were, the earlier we would go. You know, yeah. we would be there at we would be there at ten o'clock in the morning and not worry about getting dehydrated by three o'clock in the <laughs> afternoon by sitting on fucking pavement all afternoon. But, I did uh, that. I did that one time in my. Years of going to Ozfest before becoming a performer of Ozfest. I went the one year that Sabbath headline and then Mudvayne was on the second stage. And I'm, I'm, you know, you're out there, you're drinking all day in the sun like an idiot. You know, I'm like, oh, I can't wait for Sabbath. I woke up. I woke up <laughs> on the lawn with my friends when they were on the last song. And I was oh. like, no one, no one woke me up. Come on. <laughs> yeah, that's that's happened to uh, I think Maiden had played Ozfest one year. Yeah, it was the year Maiden, we were on it. 
Maiden or Priest was one of the, one of the years. And my awesome. nephew, who had yeah. just turned 21 at the time, he was like, oh, yeah, we could start drinking at 10 o'clock in the afternoon. And same thing. I watched him from my seats at the PNC Arts Center. He was on the lawn. I watched him sleep for about four and a half hours because it was about 106 <laughs> degrees that day outside. And they had those cooling tents. Remember the cooling tents they would do like yep. by the second stages. And then of course you had the animals who have to rip down the fucking cooling tent yep. to try and be the big guy. And everybody's just fucking passed out and dehydrated. Oz, all right. So let me tell you, Ozfest is weird. Like any of those summer package tours are awesome and they're weird in the same time, all right? You know, whether it's OzFest or Mayhem, I did both of those tours twice. Um, I did OzFest twice with Shadows Fallen. I did Mayhem once with Shadows Fallen and once with Anthrax. So, and it also depends on your placement of the bill. And, you know, that also adds to the experience if it's going to be better or worse. Sure. Like, let's, for example, the first year OzFest Whereas was 2003 and we were in, in Shadows Fall was on the side stage. We're on the small stage. So that meant rotating set times. One day you may be on at 930 in the morning. The next oh, yeah. day you might be on at 130. Oh. It was it was always going to be somewhere between 930 and 130 before Voivod and Cradle of Filth, because they were the last two bands that closed mm-hmm. that stage before the main stage started. So you had this Russian roulette thing. And thankfully, the way we fell in the rotation between those, you know, 10 or 12 bands or however many bands that started that tour, because Ozfest 2003 started with like 15 bands on that second stage. By the time we ended that tour, there was like eight (laughs) (laughs) people dropped off like flies. Like there was one band that we were on for like two weeks. They couldn't have, they had no more tour support. They had to drive home. It was just, it was ridiculous. So anyways, um, so we got lucky where we had a rotation where we only had that 9.30 a.m. spot, like the, the morning spot. We only had it three times. There were some bands that had it like almost seven to eight times throughout the course of the tour. And we got lucky. Like I said, we only had it three times. Now you might go, yeah, so you got to get on 9.30. It's no big deal. That's not really that big of a deal. It's a big deal when you played a headline show the night before and you got right. done at 1 a.m., right? showered by 1.30, if you're lucky, the bus got loaded and, and you were out by 2.30 in the morning to pull into OzFest at 7. <laughs> and and it doesn't matter if you can sleep till, well, my alarm is set for 8. I'm gonna, I'll sleep till 8. The bus is going to park right next to the stage where they test the PA at 7.30 in the fucking morning. And it just <laughs> vibrates you out of your bunk, regardless of whether or not you have another hour and a half to sleep on your watch or not. So that's crazy. It's all that shit that, you know, we would have those times where we like, we'd get on stage and we were like, did, did the last show end? Is this just like an extended encore? We just got to take like a three hour nap before. And then they were back on stage from last night, or this is a new show. It, it was, it was crazy. But then, it's, great, you know, it's a great then time then, though. It when was, you, when you was, did something it, like that, if you did like a nine thirty spot or, or um, a one one afternoon spot. Would you also sometimes do a show in the evening as well? Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> not us. <laughs> no, no, no. We would we would stay there and be parked up with the rest of the party caravan and <laughs> do what you do at Ozfest all day yeah, when you're done playing. The same thing you would do out in the audience: drink and watch the bands. Except here's the kicker. We didn't have to pay for the booths because there was a giant Miller Light tent back there that would just have free beer for all the artists all day. That's well, great. Maybe not all day. Usually till about the second to last band for the second stage, and then they'd be, you know, they'd be wiped out. They're like, all right, we're closed. <laughs> we don't have any more beer left. That's great. I used to love when, uh, you know, back, you know, in the late '90s, I had a, a very uh, shitty regional band as well but like we had a big rehearsal space that a lot of guys got picked up on from roadrunner so we had we were friends with the guys from el nino and the step kings and bands like that so step kings mike watt was one of my fucking closest friends at berkeley (laughs) and one of the and one of the most amazing drummers who plays a three-piece kit yeah yeah. used to drive me insane watching him, but uh, yeah. it was it was so weird going to Ozfest like that because you'd want to support your friends and then you realizing okay we got to be up and out of the house at eight o'clock park tailgate get inside to see our friends play a twenty minute set and do four songs and then you're like well we can't leave so we gotta kind of have to hang out here and fucking bake to death 
for the next 15 hours. But it was a great it was a great time in music. And that's that's one of the things I love about that time. A lot of people hate that whole um, I, I hate even saying the word new metal. You know, that, you know, that disturbed Papa Roach shit like that. But we saw a ton of amazing shows during that period because there was a lot of bands that were really on the uptick. You know, like I remember going to see Pantera the fucking eight times or five times in eight days when it was Pantera, Cold Chamber, Machine Head. That's a fucking ridiculous tour. But I, we saw it from Boston all the way to D.C. Yep. Now, just like, just like 1993, when you had when you had uh, in the top down Pantera, Sepultura, Biohazard. Right. It's a killer fucking tour. It's fucking killer tour. Great. Now, I want to talk about my favorite album of yours. Uh, and I think it's I'm safe to say it's your most successful, The War Within. Safe to say. Safe to say. Well, yep. did you start Did you start demoing that kind of stuff on, uh, on the OzFest tour? Did you uh, take a break after the tour and go in and start uh, writing some stuff for that? Uh, we, there really wasn't much time for demoing on the OzFest tour because there was a lot of time for partying. Uh, <laughs> I don't mean it that way. I mean, it wasn't like that was. It's not. That's a nine-week tour. Let me put it to you this way: we had good intentions. We're like, yeah, we'll bring the studio out with us. Nine-week tour. We're gonna have a lot of downtime on Ozfest. Blah 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 blah. Give me a break. We're gonna party every single day. It doesn't matter that we got done at eleven thirty. What we would do though, like we were productive on some stuff because, like. If we got done like at 12 o'clock, like we had the 1130 spot, you're done at 12 o'clock. We would go eat lunch. We'd wait an hour. We'd pull the weights out of the, out of the bus and we'd be working out while the second stage was still going on. You know, so it wasn't every day where we were just, you know, wasting our time. But when you're in the middle of a nine week tour and plus all the off days from Ozfest, which are a lot, we were playing headline shows or we were playing shows with Cradle or we were playing co-headline shows with Killswitch. We were still working. like. Corn had a day off every other day. We didn't. We were still, you know, hard at it. So, like I said, in a lot of those times, we're playing a late show and then you're getting to Ozfest three hours later. And, and it doesn't matter that you're not on until 12 o'clock because you're still parked next to that guy to all the bands that are now going to play. And your bus is right there. So the lack of sleep alone you do not want to get done with your show. And the last next thing you're going to do is like, come on, guys, let's go write some music now in the background. That's not, it's not going to happen. You'll wrangle a couple guys up. Someone's going to be off doing this. Someone's going to be off on someone else's bus or whatever. And that's just not going to happen. So, like I said, we, we had, we had some good ideas and we thought we might be productive like that, but it never really worked out like that. We, we, we did the tour and then we came home and we just fucking, woodshedded for that record and that's what we did uh, i can i can i can sit here and tell you you know honestly that we worked really hard on that record that record that record was written between john's house and this room that i'm sitting in right here because at that point we were rehearsing once a week here and we rehearsed once a week in massachusetts so it wouldn't be having it wouldn't have to be me driving there twice a week every week so you know, we wrote it here and we wrote it at John's house, but we were, even though we were only playing two times a week, we were on the computer every day with each other. Like if we we're making little bit changes or someone else had an idea. Hey, I got an idea for next time. Here it is just so you can become familiar with it. So I don't drive two hours to get here and we're wasting two hours just learning the riff. I can already have it down and we can boom, get to work. So we did a lot of revising on those songs, even though like we'd say, all right, this is good. It's, you know, we're done with this, right? Yeah, we're done. And then we'd sit on it for a week and someone would have another thought on it. And then oh, let's try this. And then we revise it again. So we put a lot of work into that. We, we didn't think necessarily that we were reinventing the wheel in any way, shape or form, or we were like, oh, this is going to be the next, you know, Number of the beast. It wasn't anything like that. It was just at that point we knew we needed to, we knew we needed to exceed the art of balance and and go to the next level with our band. So that was our focus, and I think that we accomplished that. I, I think so too, and it kind of pushed you into the uh, into the the headline level too with that album as well, right? It did, but I still say to this day that we didn't headline enough. 
we 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 took a lot of options to do either direct supports or co's and i was always like come on let's play longer sets let's headline why are we why aren't we headlining oh because we can take this tour and we can be direct support and you know make a little bit more money and play for more people i'm like yeah more people that want to see the band after us (laughs) (laughs) i I agree with you i remember seeing you out in, in long island at a place called the crazy donkey yeah in farmingdale and yep. it was it was like an early like an early evening show i think you guys played with agnostic front if i'm not mistaken <laughs> yes we did and uh you know one of the great things that came out uh, for, for me personally you never know where you ins- and i always say this to jeff too you never know where inspiration comes right so my wife had wanted to become a photographer she loved taking pictures blah 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 now my wife is four foot eleven so that place was very very small no matter where she's standing she's going to uh not see any of the damn show so i buy her a point and shoot camera and right. wasn't there like a railing thing in front of the stage yeah. too? Yeah. yeah of course so i'm i i get her a little point and shoot camera and i forget what song you guys are playing it could have been like inspiration on demand or something like that she happens to just take her hand up and snap a picture and i don't even think it was the digital cameras even had the preview on right. it at that that's how old these cameras were she gets it developed and it's a picture of brian in mid headbang, and his dreads are swooped up like this and it, that's the picture that made her become a photographer because wow. that one picture just from that one moment in time sure got her into a gallery yeah that's so it's awesome. all these all these weird you know people taking these weird fucking nature pictures and sunsets and bullshit and here you see this sweaty fucking neanderthal with these long ass dreads and that was in the middle of the gallery too but um yeah, I, I just I uh, for me this record was was very very important. Uh, I I loved hearing your music on the radio. Like on S S O U was a was a huge uh, support for you guys. Absolutely, you know they were a huge support for you guys, and they they really broke a lot of bands uh, in yep. a smaller market. Um, did you guys? Yeah, play- I, I have to say there was definitely there was definitely. Uh... <laughs> It was definitely cool to walk into Target and walk by the TV section and see part of part of one of our videos playing. And I'm like, holy shit, <laughs> that's that we're in Target. That's <laughs> <laughs> how how long did you uh did you tour that record though? Two years. Yeah, because I remember I remember seeing a, a couple different tours. Who did you tour with on that record? Oh god, we started headlining. Um we started headlining in the fall. Um, we did the Take take Action Tour, which is us, Event Sevenfold, Poison the Well. Uh, and I forgot who the opening band was. And the summer of 2004, that was OzFest, but we didn't tour that summer because we were finishing up and we were making videos and we were doing the prep work for that. So 2004, when we toured that, and then 05, it was mostly OzFest. When OzFest, the, most of that tour cycle was OzFest 2005, but then four weeks in Europe was Slipknot, and then nine weeks in the States was Slipknot. So for the <laughs> most of the war within, we were out with Slipknot. This, that's kind of bittersweet because like you get your first Grammy nomination and then fucking Slipknot beat you for it, too. Oh, I could care less about that. You know what? I know. Listen, I'm not. A, the Oscars are tonight. I could give a flying fuck about. Yeah, you got to look at it this way, okay? I can look at it now as from both sides because I've gotten in trouble for what I've said about the Grammys before. It was a blabbermouth post a number of years ago because I spouted off about hailstorm. But I'm going to say the same thing I said that that when I when I got you know the shit for it. They got nominated the same year Iron Maiden did. And all I said was, if this band wins over Iron Maiden, something's fucking wrong here. That was it. That's how I feel. And you know what? Going up against Slipknot, and you forget who else we went up against to, to, with that year too. Slayer. If you're going to go up against Slipknot and Slayer and, you're go- and you lose and you're mad about that, then something's <laughs> wrong with that. You know, I was just like, I even tapped Tom Araya on his shoulder. I'm like, you don't win something's wrong here (laughs) i said if i win if i win and you don't i'm giving you mine or something like that it was just like you know like it's great that you get nominated that's that in and of itself is is awesome and that's happened twice in my life so that's awesome 
So that that's an honor in and of itself. If you win, that's great. But at this point, we know it's a freaking joke. This year was an absolute cluster, you know what, of epic proportion. It started in 1989 when Jethro Tull, and no offense to Jethro Tull, because I love Jethro Tull, but you don't beat Metallica, who just destroyed the city playing one. They just literally destroyed the Grammys with a a drop-dead version of one, and then they lose. Yeah, that was the first that. moment where I went, okay, this there's something wrong here. <laughs> so, so whatever. let me here's a here's a drum question. When did you get your first endorsement? Uh, 1995, I think. Wow, 1995 with Capella Drumsticks, and then Aquarian Drumheads shortly came after that. And ironically, I'm still friends with my friend Chris Brady, who signed me there <laughs> back great. in 1996. That's freaking, I, I love that. I always like to ask that kind of question when I have uh, musicians on. Here's another question, and I want you to answer honestly, and don't feel, because okay. I've had some people answer this question honestly, and some were like, no, I, it's only the guys in my band. <laughs> if you had to put your band together, okay, oh, and anybody a dead or alive, okay, who is your band <laughs> you're playing for? this question. If anybody looks at you seriously and goes, Oh, I would just make it my band. That would be my dream band. They're full of shit. Exactly. They're so that's what I'm saying. Like, who, we get who that a lot. The only, the only, the only guys that I can tell you right now that I can tell you seriously that I would believe that would be Dimebag and Vinny or Eddie and, right. and Alex Van Halen. Those would be the only guys that I would believe. Yeah, I wouldn't sacrifice my guys in my band. Exactly. Band, I love my band. Would I replace everybody? Absolutely, I would. <laughs> so give me your dream band. So you're the drummer, obviously. I don't even know, though. See, I don't know, because there's there's so many there's so many great people out there. Okay, I've, I've been lucky enough to share the stage with some amazing guitar players and bass players throughout my career, regardless of sessions, live jams, jams at trade shows, whatever. So I play with some amazing players. But to be honest with you, the dream band, I don't know. I think a couple that, that come I would to mind love to sit down with Alex Lifeson and Getty Lee and play some music. I'm not mm-hmm. telling you that I would want to play rush songs with them. I would love to play some music with my favorite band members that are still left from this band. Who's your favorite person that you jammed with that you never played? Like the person I've jammed with. Yeah. That's a hard one too, man, because I've played with some amazing players. Uh, as far as guitar players, Marty Friedman definitely takes the cake. You know, I made a I made a record with Marty back in 2012, I think it was. And that was just a an awesome experience. I mean, bass players, I played with Stu Ham and Billy Sheen. So <laughs> I had Billy on the show, and Billy's just <laughs> one, you know, of the, one of the greatest musicians to ever walk the planet. That's, just, that's awesome in my book, you know. <laughs> so well, I want to fast forward a little bit to overkill. And now I told Jeff. And um, you know, let me I have to I have to say this too. You know, <laughs> I, I, I've been lucky, you know, that, that I, I jammed with the great Alexi Leho from Children of Bodom many, many years ago, mm-hmm. just farting around when we were on tour together. And, you know, I also played with the late, great Dimebag Daryl. So greatest, I, I still to this day is the greatest metal guitar player to ever live. Yep. You know, so yep. I want to fast, I want to fast forward to an embarrassing story. And Jeff loves when I do this because I do have a lot of embarrassing stories when it comes to music and wrestling and things like that. Uh, back in the day, and you're in overkill at this point, right? Yes. Uh, and I do want to prep I want to get back to that last question. Mm-hmm. What I do want to say though, is my current band right now, I wouldn't trade those four guys for the world. Well, that's what you're supposed to say. That's that's what I that's what I can tell you. I I love I fucking love being an overkill. I love being part of this band. I love the dudes in this band. I've known these guys for a long fucking time, and I'm really happy where I am. That's what did you think of, what did you think of the Ratskates uh, movie? Which one, the Born in the Basement thing? Yeah. Well, that's that's Rat's version of of the way some things <laughs> happened in, in the band's history. So I liked it. I like that was it. an interesting you, movie. You have to also remember, too, I saw that movie many, many years before it even came on. Now. I mean, I have that DVD. I have I have a DVD. I bought it at a store when it first came out. Really? So I've, I've seen that, and I knew that story before I even joined Overkill. But it was nicer to then rewatch that movie and then go, Didi, 
uh, did this really happen? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know? Right. something like that, you know, whatever. So b- back in the day, um, I had I a little check down. <laughs> yeah, you get fat. Exactly. I had, I had a little condition called sleep apnea. Uh, I had, and then I had surgery later on to fix it, but I was at a, uh, an overkill show at the convention hall in Asbury park, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. So overkill being a Jersey ish band, uh, very, very packed show. They were filming a DVD. Uh, because of my medical condition, Jason, I uh, tended to fall asleep a lot. Uh, and then in the middle of Elimination, which is a blistering song, uh, I wake up and I see a camera on my face because they were filming me the entire time sleeping during a fucking overkill show. Yeah. It's totally something they would do too. They really did. And I I believe it's on the DVD. I believe it's on the DVD. But how did you get that gig? That's a great I fucking gig. Hear, I didn't even hear flipped out. Hey JB, come here, take a look at this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> look at this asshole. Pretty much. <laughs> Who the exactly. fuck falls asleep at one of the loudest concerts? He would be he would have been climbing up on the drum riser because we have this little area where he's he's got his little area down here by behind Derek here, but it's right next to my drum riser. So there's a lot we have a lot of interaction throughout the show. So that definitely would have been one of those moments where he would have came over between songs and he would have been and I would have been like, What? What? That guy over there, look at him, he's fucking sleeping. Pretty much, pretty much. So that happened. That that's happened to me too. Um, when I was in, when I was still playing in Flotsam and Jetsam, we played in uh, we played the Viper Room in 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 uh, Vienna, Austria. And the guy passed out on the monitor right right in front of Mike Gilbert, like passed right out on the monitor while while we're playing. So the monitor is blaring right into his ear, and he's sleeping on. It. Yeah. <laughs> I've been there, Jason. I've been there. <laughs> so how'd you get the call for for overkill? <coughs> Knowing Bobby and Dee Dee since 1990. <laughs> oh, okay. That's really uh, okay. That's that's the I I tell everybody that's the um that's the beginning of it because it really is, because that's how long I've known those guys. Um I literally met Blitz and Dee Dee backstage at at Slayer at Mid Hudson Civic Center in Poughkeepsie mm-hmm. on this on the Seasons of the Abyss tour. So it was right after I become friends with Dave Lombardo, and I'd gone to like a number of the shows on the East Coast leg. So I I go you know to the show in Mid Hudson. I'm going backstage to to meet Dave, and I'm back in the area that they have for you know VIPs and stuff. And I just look up and I go, I go to myself, I go. Oh shit! That's what's indeed right there from Overkill, and they're just like there. It was like the high school dance. Like I'm on one end by like some end of the catering table. They're on the opposite end. No, no, no one's talking to anybody in the room. So I just like walked over, like, "Hey guys, can I get a autograph?" And I had him autograph my uh my sticky pass. I still have that. I t- texted it to him one day. I was like, "Hey, look at this! <laughs> Where did fucking get that from?" So. That's like the first time I met those guys. And then my old band opened up for them in 1993 back at a club that we used to have here called Saratoga Winners. And uh, I saw Bliss before the show and I begged him, like, please watch my band. <laughs> just, I don't even care if you like the band. Just please, you know, just watch me play drums. <laughs> and, and yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, kid, whatever, whatever. So comes time for my band to play and sure as shit blitz and dd looked over like one song in they're both standing there stood there the whole entire 25 minutes that we played too i was like holy shit you know and 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 it's funny because bobby still remembers that story because he tells it to people because he tells it to people all the time i'm like i go because i'll i'll start it and i'll be like yeah i said i opened up for these guys when i was like 23 so i used to play in like this you know death metal makeup band and some of you like no way i don't believe that i'm like blitz did I not play in a makeup band? Oh, yeah, I did. He goes, I still remember walking over you and going, Jesus Christ, you got enough drums you got to pack up now? Like, yeah, that's the way it is. That is the worst part about being a drummer, though. Yeah, it is. So it really sucks. So that was really it. But then then I I met Tim Mallory, you know, who was their drummer for years, like a, a year later. And Tim and I became friends. So that's really where my affiliation really started to happen with those guys, because 
Now I was there before the show at other shows, driving the shows. I'd pick them up before the shows. I'd take them to places after the show. So I just became the, you know, the Albany, New York overkill dude. So, you know, just becoming friends for, we were friends for so many years. And then I went on and did my thing with Shadows Fall, you know, ran into those guys in varying places, you know, touring, crossing paths. Actually, one time, 2006, I was out in L.A. for NAM. Overkill was playing at the Whiskey. I showed up, ended up going up and jamming in elimination with those guys. Nice. And, uh, you know, and then just in 2017, they had Eddie filling in, but they knew Eddie wasn't going to be permanent. It was one day in February, my phone rang. I looked down, I see Bobby. I'm like, what's he calling for? Because, like, I'd usually get a phone call when it was near time, you know, hey, we're coming to town. Should I put you on the list? I knew they were coming, but it wasn't for like another six weeks. I'm like, this is a little early for the, hey, you want me, want me to be on the guest list call, you know? So I was like, hey, what's going on? And he's like, ah, you know, me and Didi are, you know, and the guys are talking about making a change. And we want to know if, you know, you'd be interested in being a part of a band. Is it bear shit in the woods? <laughs> Pretty much as, as, as simple as that. Do you want to? Great. Yes, I really do. Let's do it. All right. Last question. When the fuck am I getting a new Shadows Fall record? No clue. You suck. And it's not the answer I wanted. It's not me. It's not me. I'll tell you, I'll tell I'll tell you that right now. It's not me. Some other guys have another new band that yeah. I guess they just announced not too long ago. So they're obviously preoccupied doing other things. Um, all I'm gonna leave on that is it's a pandemic. There's plenty of time sitting home that I would think that there would be plenty of time to write other material too, but hey, I'm not gonna put I don't want to point any fingers. I'm not going to push any buttons. I, what I can tell you is that we tried to get together last year for a reunion. Mm-hmm. We have a date again scheduled for this year. That's all I can tell you right now. Yeah. We're, 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 we're not going to say we're still going to be on hiatus, but we're not going to say we're active either. We want to just try to play a show. That's the point of right now is can we just, can we play a show first? And then everything Super. else that comes after that, like talk of writing a record or talk of writing an EP. If anything, we've already talked about this, though. We said, if anything, we would write an EP first. We wouldn't write a full length. We'd probably just do four song increments or something. Where's the show supposed to be? Right now, it's supposed to be the Palladium in Massachusetts. But <clears throat> uh, it, it's also not to the end of the year. I don't know if it's even going to happen. You know, they asked us again. They The date was held from last year. They asked us again. They said, we're down for it as long as it can be done properly. And as long as that there's a chance to do that at that point. I mean, who knows? I mean, I really hope there is. By, by seven months from now, I really hope that we can do at least a socially distanced show or whatever. But if we can't, it would suck. But the one thing I don't want to do, I'll be quite honest with you, Sean, I don't want to do a half-assed, third filled palladium on a reunion show because of covid just to do a reunion show because that's really what is the fucking point oh i just saw Madball two day, three days ago take over thompson square park in new york city and did a full fucking set with about really? 300 people going absolutely ape shit in a mosh pit so i cannot fucking wait if that show comes off i will be there and i promise you one thing i will be awake <laughs> awesome Jeff, take it home. Jason, thank you so much for joining us. We really, uh, we really appreciate. It. Thank you for the time. You're welcome. Uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, no, our pleasure. Um, before we go, just want to, um, Sean, Jason, are you guys uh, fans of Jim Steinman? Yeah, he was a great writer. Yeah, absolutely. He was, you know, very, very, very important for all of Meatloaf's, you know, famous stuff. And yeah, I know and Jeff's favorite, Jeff Celine Dion. Just lost I, think, I, think, I, I loved his style of songwriting. I loved how grandiose everything was. No. Um, I thought he, I never really thought he got enough uh, credit in the mainstream that he, he probably should have. Um, but, you know, he passed away this week. And I yep. just wanted to acknowledge that and, you know, just give my condolences. And just like, you know, in case people hadn't heard it, those people know uh, he was a great, great songwriter.
there. He wrote, you know, not only for uh, Meatloaf, but he wrote for Air Supplies, uh, Celine Dion, and you know uh, Bonnie Tyler, and you know, you know, so many other artists. So uh, just wanted to tip the hat. Only there. Jeff can fucking bring up Air Supply when I'm talking about fucking Hatebreed and Shadows Fall. And I, I was overkill. just about to go. I'm like, yeah, he oh. wrote that out of hell, and he goes, yeah, and he also wrote for Air Supply. I was like, he wrote, God, really? he wrote one of them. It was a great song called. Making love out of nothing at all. We're Jason, this is what I deal with every fucking week. Song too. <laughs> every fucking week I deal with this, Jason. Every fucking week. Listen, we didn't bring up Pat Benatar. We didn't bring up the Irishman. We nothing didn't bring up Pat the Benatar. fact that I worked in A and R. We all that we didn't bring that up this week. So you're ahead of the game, Sean. Give up. Nothing wrong with Pat Benatar. I couldn't even make it all the way through the Irishman. <laughs> Thank you. Did you make it through that note? Did you make it through the first hour and a half? It was like only like 45 minutes left to go. I'm like, I I can't do it. But you made it through the first hour and a half, right? Yeah. Okay. So you saw me in the Irishman. That's good. That's good enough for me. Okay. All right, guys. Thank you so much. We have another great show scheduled for next week. Please continue to subscribe. Thank you, Jason. Sean, I'll talk to you during the week. Take care, everybody. Thanks again, Jason. You're welcome. 